Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. I don't typically give the talk on the first Sunday of the month. It's almost always up to Reverend David to introduce our monthly themes on these first Sundays. The themes are often timeless concepts, things we have some shared def definitions of, things like gratitude or imagination. So we don't usually have to give a basic definition. And by the time I get around to talking about the theme, I can just dive in. Not so this month when our theme is beloved community. Beloved community is not so much a timeless concept as a modern philosophical creation. It's not something that many of us can quickly explain off the top of our heads. Even as a minister, I discovered that for me, the phrase beloved community evoked more feelings than words. It was something I had experienced more than articulated. So what might we mean by beloved community? What is this idea that can seem so simple at its core and yet so challenging to bring about? Let's look at what some of our wisest thinkers and leaders have to say. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is the public figure most associated with the idea of beloved community. He didn't originate the term, but he did popularize it. And he spoke about it frequently during his brief but brilliant lifetime. To boil down King's many thoughts and remarks on the concept, the King Center in Atlanta offers a good, concise explanation. King did not see the beloved community as a lofty utopia achieved in the end times. Rather, he saw it in the King Center's words as a realistic, achievable goal that could be attained by a critical mass of people committed to and trained in the philosophy and methods of nonviolence. Dr. King's beloved community is a global vision in which all people can share in the wealth of the earth. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit. Love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace and justice will prevail over war and military conflict. Now, that explanation may in fact sound a little lofty and utopian to those of us living in these less than harmonious times. But Dr. King lived in very turbulent times himself. He was an African-American leader speaking out amid the white supremacist violence of the South. He was not sitting at home dreaming and theorizing about beloved community from inside a bubble of comfort. And his message about beloved community was essentially humanist. He wasn't saying that God was gonna come down and bring about the beloved community. He believed that human beings acting in ways of nonviolence and love could make it happen if they chose. For King, the love at the core of beloved community was agape love, which he described as understanding, redeeming goodwill for all, an overflowing love which is purely spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative. King said that agape does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. 
It begins by loving others for their sakes and makes no distinction between a friend and enemy. It is directed toward both. Agape, he said, is love seeking to preserve and create community. This type of love is consistent with the Unitarian Universalist principles we hear each week at the beginning of our Sunday gatherings. The first UU principle talks about the inherent worth and dignity of each person. There's no distinction between worthy and unworthy people, because as King said, all are worthy. And our sixth principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, aligns well with what King was talking about. To find the true origins of the concept of beloved community, we have to jump back at least a half century from King and take a look at the words of the American philosopher Josiah Royce. Royce, like King, was both a hopeful Christian and an earthbound realist about the challenges and evil goings-on of this world. And both men had great faith for what humanity could achieve. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Royce encouraged his fellow human beings to respond to the forces of evil this way, by adopting the attitude of loyalty to goodness and truth, which he saw as real forces in the world and as, quote, the metaphysical opposite of evil. Interestingly, Royce's roadmap to the beloved community focuses less on love and more on loyalty. Dr. Jackie Kegley, writing in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, describes Royce's beloved community as consisting of all those who would be fully dedicated to the cause of loyalty, truth, and reality itself. Loyalty, truth, and reality itself. Royce died more than 100 years ago, but his priorities seem on point in this moment we are living in, when loyalty to the truth is hardly a given, and a significant percentage of our country does not seem fully dedicated to reality itself. It's also worth noting that Royce drew a distinction between a positive moral loyalty and the more sinister predatory loyalty, as he called it. Indeed, in our own time, we have recently seen the ugly places where unthinking amoral loyalty can lead. So beloved community can be a vision of global society and it can be linked to human loyalties. What else might it be? Well, the Reverend Victoria Safford of the White Bear UU Church here in Minnesota describes beloved community as less of a destination than an approach to life and to the world. She writes this, the beloved community is a way of being spiritually, politically, economically, emotionally, intellectually. Beloved community is an attitude, an orientation of the heart. It's a disciplined understanding of your own relationship to other people, to everyone else on the planet, to every living thing. If you are religious, this is a religious discipline and it goes by many names. If you are an ethical humanist, it is a deliberate moral stance. It is a daily practice, she says, a spiritual politics that requires inclusivity, nonviolence, and the hard discipline of radical hospitality. It requires love, agape. So in Reverend Safford's view, beloved community is an outlook and a discipline, an outlook and discipline guided by love. One more interpretation of beloved community that I'd like to share comes from Father Gregory Boyle. 
Boyle is a Jesuit priest in California who for decades has run the country's largest rehabilitation program for gang members. He's dedicated his life to working directly with those whom many view as unworthy. And when he talks about beloved community, the word he focuses on is kinship. The measure of our compassion lies not in our service of those on the margins, he says, but in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with them. That's what we want to achieve, this sense of mutuality, where we obliterate once and for all the illusion that we are separate. No us and them, just us. For there's an idea that's taken root in the world, he says. It's at the root of all that is wrong with the world. And the idea would be this, that there just might be lives out there that matter less than other lives. How do we stand against that idea? So in Boyle's beloved community, there are no outsiders and humans all have a sense a feeling of kinship with one another. After reflecting on all these words from these different thinkers as they describe and elaborate on the idea of beloved community, I realized that maybe my initial reaction, that it's a feeling, something experiential, maybe that's part of the picture too. For me, beloved community brings to mind family reunions when I was a kid big sprawling outdoor gatherings on both my mother's and father's sides. While there were significant differences in careers, incomes, politics, and personalities in these families, everyone was worthy of an invitation. And there was a spirit of abundance, of food, laughter, and lots of other kids to play with, even if you didn't know them very well. There was loyalty, kinship, and inclusion. I felt beloved and cared for, and I felt community. Another place I felt like I was part of the beloved community, and I think I've mentioned this before, is at pride festivals, particularly when I was a younger adult. All manner of difference is part of the pageantry of humanity at a LBGTQ pride festival. One might feel affirmed by seeing other people like oneself, but even if there's no one exactly like you, it's often clear that the full rainbow of humanity is worthy of attention and inclusion, regardless of who you might be. I used to dread the end of Pride Weekend and could feel my guard going back up when I had to re-enter the pigeonholes of the regular world, a world that felt farther short of the ideals of beloved community. And I know I've mentioned before the sense of beloved community that I experienced in the fall of 2019 at the National Symposium of Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism. I was there as a white ally and listener, and even though my experiences were not centered, I felt safe and loved and valued because of the care and hospitality, and because the whole event had an, had an inherently inclusive culture that centered everyone's humanity. As I've heard activists say, what's good for black people is good for people. And events like the symposium can evoke the beloved community. You perhaps noticed a commonality in these beloved community experiences I've mentioned. They were all temporary events. The ideals of agape love and valuing everyone are actually not that complicated, but they can be very challenging to sustain over time or in permanent institutions. Still, all the thinkers I've cited this morning agree that beloved community is something worth striving for, even if it's work that will extend beyond our lifetimes. 
This morning, I'm very grateful to be sharing the space of our Sunday talk with FUS member Amanda Harrington, who's going to look at what beloved community might mean for our congregational community. Before I go, I want to leave you with a question I've asked our congregation before. What would it be like if every kind-hearted humanist who came through our doors could find a place here? With our physical doors closed and our online doors open as wide as ever, it's a good time to reflect on our role in creating, creating beloved community. And here's Amanda to tell us more. When I think of a beloved community, I think about changing Minneapolis or the country or society in general. But I'm not sure that I'm up for changing the world right now. So how about starting with FUS? What does a UU beloved community look like? UUA President Reverend Susan Frederick Gray spoke of a beloved community at the 2017 Justice General Assembly. She said that it is a community that practices radically inclusive and compassionate, anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural, multi-generational faith within, and acts powerfully in partnership and solidarity for justice and liberation beyond. That still sounds exhausting. However, I totally support the idea behind it, which I think of as a community where every single person feels welcomed, connected, and included. It's basically equity work. And people at FUS are starting this work already. Moving toward equity is the FUS diversity, inclusion, and equity team. And we've been working on this for over a year. We've been reading and thinking and talking and trying to figure out reasonable actions that can make FUS a beloved community. We want a culture shift at FUS to allow all people, regardless of race, gender expression, ability, or income, to feel welcomed. Not to increase the color in the pews, but because it's the right thing to do. Because that's how we live out our humanist beliefs. But I often wonder, do you want the culture at FUS to shift? It's a real question. Do you want everyone to feel connected? Or is it okay if just some people feel that way? We're a democratic society after all. Maybe the status quo is fine as long as the majority feel included. I believe that almost all of us would say, yes, we want more diversity and equity. But let's be real, talk is cheap. It's easy to say yes without putting any effort into making it happen. I've seen this play out at organizations, you probably have too. Leaders decide that their organization must become more equitable. So classes are held and books are read and people gather to talk about fixing the problems of racism um, systemic injustices and inherent biases. But when it comes to taking action, they get stuck. They talk about how they're not ready or 
that it's hard to change things or they just don't know where to start. So maybe they read another book and they talk some more about injustice, but nothing actually changes. It doesn't cost much to read and talk. And I know it's not cheap to build up your personal equity library, but that's not the cost I'm talking about. I'm talking about how we pay with our hands and with our sweat and by changing old habits and giving our time. I'm not calling anyone out. In fact, I'm calling you in, as Reverend Kelly would say. I'm asking you to join me in considering what would it look like if FUS was a beloved community? What would need to change for our congregation to be a radically inclusive and compassionate, anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural, multi-generational community? Would it mean asking someone who you normally wouldn't talk to, someone really different from you, to join your group so that you could get to know them better? Would it mean installing a wheelchair lift for the stage so that anyone can get on our stage, regardless of ability, even if it took away from how beautiful the upper assembly hall was? Would it mean changing assembly practices in a way that would be uncomfortable to some members initially so that others felt more deeply engaged? Would we diversify our ministers? Even if that meant losing someone we really liked and were comfortable with so that others could see themselves and their culture reflected back from the pulpit in a tangible way. And what would need to change for our congregation to really be in partnership and solidarity with groups outside of FUS? Could it mean getting involved deeply with just one or two community groups instead of giving money to a variety of groups? Could it mean asking a community group what they really need us to do and then being willing to do it? regularly, even if it was unglamorous and really hands-on, like providing childcare or driving people or washing their dishes. So back to my original question. Do you want the culture at FUS to shift? Do you want everyone to feel connected here? I don't know if anyone has asked you that before. So go ahead, take some time to think and talk. Maybe you'll talk about it today at coffee hour in the breakout room, or maybe you need more time to consider and you'll talk about it later this week with your family. But don't take too long because soon I, or someone else, will be asking you to act. Maybe we'll ask to add equity or beloved community to our mission statement or aspirations. We're already asking you to support the UUA's proposed eighth principle, but let's acknowledge that both of those actions are still just words. We're asking some FUS committees to consider how they recruit new members, 
and to change their practices to prioritize diversity and honor the value in having many voices at the table. Eventually, those actions may become more concrete. I hope that when you are asked to take an action that moves FUS toward a more beloved community, that you join me. Take my hand. Take a step, even if it's uncomfortable. And take actions to change FUS to a community where everyone feels included and that they belong. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.